You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to Pamela Snow about ideas that continue to surface in the shift from balanced literacy to structured literacy. Where are educators resistant to change and why? Looking at these ideas that prevail even when there's research to support otherwise helps us to gain perspective and understanding and can help inform how we make change. We can't wait to learn more about this topic with you. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we are so excited to talk to a really amazingly influential person in the literacy space. She wrote a blog that caught the attention of educators everywhere, including us, and her blogs are just awesome. But the blog that we're going to talk about today is called Balanced Literacy Bingo. It debunks a lot of ideas about balanced literacy. We can't wait. It's going to be a fun one. (laughs) And so we have Pamela Snow with us today, which is really exciting. We've been reading her things for a long time. And if you don't know who she is, she is a speech language pathologist and a registered psychologist and a professor at La Trobe University. And her research focuses on language disorders in vulnerable children and adolescents. And we can't wait to talk to her today. So welcome. Hello. Hello to both of you. It's lovely to be with you from the other side of the world. Um, <laughs> from morning tomorrow. For me. Well, yes, that's right. <laughs> from yes, yes, I'm coming, coming to you from tomorrow. The future. <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I have to tell you, the future is not necessarily a whole lot better than the past <laughs> just yet. But, <laughs> but great to that be with you. Fun. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for being here. And I'm wondering, Pam, if it might be a great thing just to start with the Balanced Literacy Bingo blog post Mm. that you wrote that you, I think you had said you were inspired by the ideas that kept surfacing in the conversation and this resistance to change. So would Mm. you like to say more about that? Sure. Um, Well, yes, I think the inspiration for that particular blog post was a series of media interviews that I'd done. Sometimes, you know, these things all come at once and you find yourself talking to the media quite a lot. And sometimes um, journalists put these ideas to you as a provocation. Sometimes they represent commonly held views um, that are almost memes that circulate um, in the education community. And I found myself kind of batting back a lot of these um, ideas and I thought I need to put them all together in one place. In some respects, they're already I've already addressed them in different places on my blog post. But um, I, I think people who are working in schools where they're trying to really break loose from the shackles of balanced literacy do get frustrated um, with these ideas that are often trotted out in a very uncritical kind of way. They're, they're trotted out as truths that people haven't stood back from and questioned, you know. So the, uh, the idea that all children learn differently, you know, how often do we hear that? And yet, 
do they? Um, and, and what would it mean to live in a world? What would it mean for teachers to live in a world where all children learn differently? You know, just have a think about that. What would it mean for a medical practitioner if everybody responded differently to infection? Um, you know, that that's just not actually how the world works. So, um I put together my off the top of my head um, list of what I think are the, the common tropes or mean, memes in this um, space. And then once I shared that blog post, I was quite inundated with an extra set um, and so um, added to the original set. And I think, you know, probably there's more that could still be added as well. So it gives you a good sense, I think. Well, it gives us all a good sense of um, the the level of um, resistance sometimes that teachers have to deal with and the ideas that they have to unpack. They have to unpack them themselves, first of all, um, and then they often have to unpack them in their conversations with literacy leaders and school administrators, um, principals, other influential people who can be um, barriers or facilitators to change. Such a good point. And I just, that resonates so much that, especially that example that you gave, like one size doesn't fit all and, or, you know, all children learn differently. You're right. I think the, the minority of children learn differently, right? The majority Hmm. of children do learn in the same way. We've got the decades of research to back that up. And also, wow, what an overwhelming thing to think about. I've one time, you know, I've had in my class 36 students. Can you imagine having 36 different ways of having to teach? (laughs) I I think we'd all need to go and have a lie down at the very thought of that um, (laughs) because that's not how classrooms work. And you're right, there's a small group of children who we need to be able to identify whose learning needs are different, um, usually I would say in an order of magnitude um, in terms of what they need rather than an actual qualitative difference in what they need. If we look at frameworks like response to intervention, they remind us um, that Uh, there's this thing called dose um, that's really important and sometimes some children need extra exposures to the skill that's being taught and extra opportunities for repetition, retrieval practice and mastery. Uh, But that doesn't mean that they learn differently. It it just means that they they need those extra exposures in order Mm. to consolidate. They may have attentional difficulties, um, that they may have underlying language difficulties, they may be an English language learner that's making it a little bit harder right now. but still, I think um, for 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 most children, it's the um, it's a dose issue rather than actually needing something that's qualitatively different. I was just going to say the analogy to medicine is really on point there too, because the whole time you were just talking, I was thinking of your your analogy to medicine and how it's so similar, and that yeah, we're you know if if everyone has a cold, we're going to start with the same thing to try and. To help them. And for most people, it probably works, right? But then for the handful, you're going to have to try other things, maybe more of something or something different, but it's very similar. 
Exactly. And look, sometimes people get a bit, um, I was going to say toey. I don't know whether that's an expression you use in the US. <laughs> no, <laughs> annoyed. But I, like. yeah. okay. <laughs> um, I don't know where it comes from. Uh, get, get a bit annoyed about analogies between education and medicine and other branches of health. Right. But I think they hold up pretty well. And sometimes people say, oh, but, you know, um, in health, it's much more sort of black and white and and so forth. In medicine, it's much more black and white. It's actually not um, because in both cases, we're dealing with people and and that introduces a lot of um, vagaries and um, unpredictability in both cases. You know, there's individual personal characteristics, anxieties, cultural factors. Um, in, in both cases, we're often um, looking at trying to affect behaviour change um, and all of the challenges that that entails. Um, but I think in both cases, we're looking for the best horse in the race to back. Um, it's not that there's one um, black and white answer, that it's a binary choice between this and that, but we're looking for the best approach to back. And of course, you know, there's a, a set of scientific principles that we can apply, but there's also a number of um, um, characteristics of individual practitioners that come into play, in this case in the classroom, that uh, allow practitioners to put their own individual stamp and to craft the, the way that they're applying that science. And that's what we want to see in both health and in education, I think. that's So, Pam, that's actually what when Melissa and I started talking together. That's what I was thinking was it, when you mentioned dose, it's important to have the research-based scientific approach first as our foundation. And then we can think about dosage. And I just wanted to make sure that we said that because I was thinking back to a podcast that we uh, had with a teacher and parent of a dyslexic child. And what she said really struck me, and it still strikes me to this day. She said he was getting um, balanced literacy instruction in his tier one, and then he was being pulled out for intervention for dosing, more dosing, right? And getting mm -hmm. more of the same balanced yeah. literacy in that. So I just, I thought it was important just to kind of reference that, that like we're starting the, with the foundation of <laughs> when we're talking about that dose or that repetition, it's, it's based in scientific evidence and practices that align. That's really important, Laurie. And, um, it, you know, this, this can work for us or against us. And I guess, you know, this is one of the big problems that, um, people in what we might call science of reading circles have with something like reading recovery, for example, mm -hmm. that that's an increased dose of a weak intervention. Um, so, you know, we're almost moving in, if, if we extend the analogy, we're almost moving into homeopathy kind of um, so, uh, uh, paradigms here. So if we've got a weak tier one, and our tier two is to deliver more of that low impact 
teaching at Tier 2, then we shouldn't expect to see um, significant change. And of course, you know, that's what so much of the reading recovery literature tells us, then, that when we're basing our Tier 1 instruction on um, models of reading that don't actually have a, a cognitive science empirical foundation to them, your know, ideas about reading being a natural thing for children to do and children needing to be immersed in text and, and all of those lovely ideas, but that's all they really were, lovely ideas that didn't bear up. And then when we identify struggling um, learners, and, and by the way, I think it's very strange to have a tier one model that assumes a high rate of failure and has a, a product waiting over here um, for those students who we know are going to fail in that model. Um, you know, I, I think that the very term, I don't know, and I know we didn't log on today to talk about reading recovery, but it is part of the balanced literacy landscape. Yeah. But, you know, the very idea that any child should need to recover from their tier one instruction, you know, did no one stop and think, you know, what 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 that language is saying. Um, but then the inverse is also true when we have a strong tier one then for most children it does work to increase the dosage as long as we have a strong model, we've got a good um, instructional scope and sequence, we're using instructional time really wisely and carefully, and, you know, as Anita Archer says, cut the fluff and teach the stuff, so make sure that there's not time being wasted in a, in a literacy block, then we can feel confident that for the students who our monitoring tells us are not quite um, where they're meant to be, we can provide more of that high quality intervention to, in most cat cases, catch children up at tier two, if not then um, at, at tier three. So it, could, it, it can work for us or against us. Yeah. And I'm assuming we could catch them up at tier two or tier three because there's so many less of them. Exactly, exactly. And I think sometimes that's where, um, in my experience, I've been able to, um, if you like, cut through with school administrators and leaders that, that idea that um, this is not just an ideological question of changing the way you're going to teach reading in your school. It's a question of reallocation of resources because you're not going to um, receive extra funding next year or the year after. Um, you, you've got a certain amount of funding. How are you going to use it to maximise um, success for the largest number of students and ensure that the students who do need intervention resources are actually going to be able to receive it? And of course, the most efficient way to do that is to teach really well at Tier 1 and have the majority of your students succeeding academically and behavioural and emotionally. I don't think we talk quite enough about the the impacts, the flow-on effects uh, for behaviour and social-emotional regulation in classrooms when children are on track 
um, with reading and and no doubt with numeracy as well. Reading is my thing, but I think a lot of what we're talking about applies to numeracy too. But that's very good for children's mental health to be succeeding academically in the classroom. Um, but then, yes, inevitably there will be some children for whom that tier one intervention isn't enough, but then we've got the resources um, to meet their needs, bearing in mind that if we just let things go, by the time children get through to grade three, grade four, and they're behind, now we need a lot of resources. And most schools just don't have um, such resources available to them. Yeah, that's such a good point. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I had pulled out a couple of the balanced literacy bingo uh, items for us to talk about. And we already talked about one of them without saying it because <laughs> our conversation took us there. So, and it was a listener one. So I just want to make sure we say it because we asked our listeners for input. So it, we really talked about systematic phonics teaching is just for yep. tier two instruction. And obviously, we just debunked that. It's not. So... <laughs> and, and unfortunately, that is a problem. Um, I, 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 it's a problem in some schools in Australia. Um, there, there are, I'm certainly aware of schools that, um, and, and in some education jurisdictions as well, there are some you know, senior education policymakers and administrators who will... Um, accept, which sounds like a funny verb to be using in relation to um, high quality reading instruction, accept the use of um, systematic synthetic phonics as an intervention, but not as a tier one instruction. And of course, that's incredibly confusing for our weakest readers to be exposed to one kind of teaching in tier one, be pulled out and exposed to a completely different model of instruction in tier two, and then going back into tier one. Um, I and mean, if we want to lose our, our weak readers, I could think of no better recipe. Yeah. I don't even know why we would think that is a good idea <laughs> at all. I feel like it's the equivalent. I mean, I'll probably catch flack for this, but I feel like it's the equivalent of like, you know, the thought of like, oh, I'm going to eat a salad and then I'm going to eat a cheesecake. Like, you know, like it's mm. just like it's an unhealthy way to to approach eating. It's Absolutely. an unhealthy way to approach education, right? Like that. I, I don't even know if that's the right comparison, but it, it they negate each other, right? Like, well, it's unbalanced. That's for sure. Unbalanced, yeah. it, it doesn't it doesn't honor that word balance in, <laughs> in any way, shape or form. I do think, though, look, I'll give you a little bit of flack for it is that. I mean, I think your body can like handle that, right? Like, okay, like you ate something good. All right. You ate something not so good. Your body can like even it out. But for a kid learning how to read, I don't think they like that is just too much for them and their brains to figure out what's going on over here, over here and try and make sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we do need to remember, I think, just um, how complex this reading thing is for a significant proportion of children. I, I think what has been the saviour of balanced literacy in many respects is the fact that, you know, we don't know the exact percentage, let's say for argument's sake, 60% of kids get their um, via balanced literacy instruction, I would argue, and I think you would argue that they would perhaps do better with more explicit instruction. They'd almost certainly be better spellers um, if they had more explicit instruction. Um, so that that has 
um, saved balanced literacies vacant in a way. It's it's allowed it to um, to hang around a lot longer. If it if it didn't work for anybody, you know, I'd like mm-hmm. to think that it w- would have um, been um, rolled back um, before now. But there's a significant proportion of children for home reading is anything other than easy and our job is to make it as easy as possible to facilitate that access to the how the code works how the English writing system works and you know people get all kinds of caught up in, um, you know, too much phonics or, um, you know, phonics does this, phonics does that. Good phonics instruction simply allows children to understand how their writing system works so that they have full access to everything that being a reader facilitates. They they can access meaning, they can um, access um, bodies of knowledge, they can take themselves into worlds of imagination, Um, they can be building their vocabularies, they can be pondering the use of figurative and idiomatic language and what on earth does it mean when, when a writer says this strange thing, expresses this idea in this strange way. That's the reason that we want to knock the code part out of the way early. I mean, I I think there's um, a lot to be said for high-quality word analysis and teaching of morphology and etymology once children are in the mid, what we call primary, you call elementary school years. You know, I think that sublexical analysis needs to continue so that children gain a deep understanding and a much deeper understanding than um, than what initial phonics instruction necessarily confers. But I, I just see good SSP as being a process of removing barriers, um, you know, to, to getting to the top half of the reading rope and, and getting there as quickly and as efficiently as possible because then we're just opening doors um, and, you know, children are not seeing closed doors. They're, they're just seeing long corridors of possibilities. I'm ready to jump into a couple others if you're okay with that. <laughs> so I, these two both have to do with something I think is one of the things I hear so much about, which is the love of reading. Mm-hmm. And so number seven said the explicit teaching kills the love of reading. And then number 18 is that the goal of balanced literacy is for children to love reading. We, mm. I know Lori and I both have a lot of thoughts about this, but we would love to hear yours first. <laughs> Well, you know, I think, you know, again, it's just one of those ideas, those tired old memes that um, have been trotted out without any evidence to to back them up. And, and you know, I think what kills a love of anything is not being able to do it. You know, children don't 100%. enjoy doing anything that they don't understand and that they can't do and that they don't experience success in. Now, the flip side of that is, um, or perhaps a corollary of that argument, is that learning has to be fun. 
And, uh, you know, I just don't know what fun means in this context. Does that mean children have to be laughing and smiling all the way through a lesson and have to be visibly enjoying themselves? Or do they need to be engaged with learning and prepared to try things that are a little bit difficult and experiencing the satisfaction of mastery? You know, is that fun? I, I think we've got to take this fun word out of the mix because um, you know what's fun for me and what's fun for you are not necessarily going to be the same thing. Fun isn't something that we can easily measure. Um, so, you know, this idea that teaching something explicitly kills the love of that thing, well, what what would pianists say about that? Um, that, you know, being taught explicitly the relationship between the notation on the page and the keys in front of them, did that kill their love of the piano? It probably involves some effort and some repetition um, and, you know, we, we know um, pianists have to do scales and things like that to, you know, to the point of automaticity and, yeah, there's probably a bit of tedium in that but there's also a sense of mastery and accomplishment. Um, and the other part of this, of course, is this whole idea that, and there's been quite a bit of um, discussion about this in the last week or two on social media that you've probably seen, this idea that, children have to love reading. And um, uh, Lynn Stone said in a, a, a blog post recently, it's really none of our business whether children love reading. Our, our business is that they can read. And in that sense, teachers are at the front line as public health practitioners, really, because literacy is a public health um, phenomenon. We know that being literate casts a very long positive shadow across people's entire lives and being illiterate also does. It casts a, a negative shadow. Um, I want children to be able to make those choices about how they use their reading skills and those choices might change at different points in their lives and for different purposes but it's about choices in the same way that um, when we teach history, does every student have to love history? Does every student have to love art or music or sport? Why is it that everybody has to love reading? Uh, and I, you know, I think we really need to stand back and question that. They absolutely um, have a right to be a proficient reader and we have a responsibility to ensure that all children are proficient readers. And again, that's another thing that uh, there's been some discussion about this week about what percentage we should be aiming for. And, you know, it's, it's somewhere above 95%. Um, and then through our, um, through our T1 instruction and then we're reserving our intervention resources, as we said earlier, for that small percent who, who need it. Um, but yes, we, we, well, first of all, there's no evidence that teaching something explicitly kills a love of that thing. And secondly, it's very hard to love doing anything that you can't do. And thirdly, as Lynn Stone reminds us, it's none of our business what children love and don't love. It's our job to get the teaching right. Yeah, and I would just say I was a secondary teacher, so I never taught balanced literacy, you know, the the whole package. But I still think, you know, I I have a master's to be a reading specialist. And I think a lot of the things that came out of that were like 
just find the right book for a student that, you know, and, and I, I mean, I fell for that and I did that for years and I can tell you that was not the magic bullet was to like, didn't work, did it? No. (laughs) And now looking back, you're like, of course it's not like just helping a kid find even a series of books that they love is not going to help them overcome the the things they actually need in decoding. Exactly. And and we don't say, you know, find the right piano um, for the student or, or find, find the right the piece right of music bike. for them to play. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was we, thinking we, my daughter plays soccer. I was thinking, I, have we, I guess we found the right soccer ball because she loves soccer, <laughs> you know, found the right ball. But, I mean, it's just as silly to say. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, oh, my gosh. All right. So I'm hoping we can talk about another one. Melissa and I have two more lined up for you. Um <laughs> This is number 19. This was from a listener. Give them time. They'll catch on or catch up. This one was one of my personal favorites because I think it's favorites in the way that we have to address it because it leaves, leads parents and families and caregivers on so much and it leads children on too. And they know something's wrong way before we do. Look, I think this one, um, I think, provokes a a level of discomfort um, for a lot of teachers, particularly teachers who have moved away from balanced literacy. I don't know whether you've read the the guest blog post on the Snow Report written by Sue Knight a couple of years ago called, um, it's a, it's a, school leaders sliding doors moment and Sue is a principal at a school in Ballarat in regional Victoria um, about an hour and a half from where I live and and she's she's written uh, I, I really do um, recommend people read her blog post I think it's a very powerful personal account of what it was like as a school leader to recognize um, where we're not teaching reading in the optimal way and we need to make changes. This is on us. Our data is on us. It's not about the children. Um, The data isn't the children's fault. You know, the data is our responsibility and they change the way that they teach reading. But Sue references um, that that very statement of, you know, people, um, teachers almost kind of putting their hands behind their back and crossing their fingers as they said things like that, not crossing their fingers because they were lying, crossing their fingers because they were hoping that that's what was going to be the case because they didn't actually know what to do when parents came to them and said, look, I'm concerned. My son or daughter, you know, seems to be really struggling. Um, And in many cases, all that teachers have got um, to say in that situation is give them time, they'll catch up. Well, maybe a small percentage of children do catch up. I think it probably is a very small percentage who just happen to catch up. I think what schools sometimes don't see, particularly schools in more middle-class areas, is the level of tutoring that's going on in the background that parents are accessing. And if there's some catching up going on, it's because there's some one-to-one tutoring going on. And guess what? Nobody provides one-to-one tutoring that is characterised by more balanced literacy instruction. One-to-one tutoring gets down into the weeds of how the writing code works and explicitly teaches children who've got gaps in their knowledge about the writing system. It teaches them how phonemes and graphemes relate to each other. It teaches them how to decode through the words. 
So, you know, this idea that um, children are going to catch up is unfortunately, in most cases, simply untrue. And where there is some catching up happening, it's it's because something else is going on in the background. And I think that protects schools. Um, I, I think we need to lift the veil on this because there are schools whose data in, in Australia, we have a national um, assessment monitoring system called NAPLAN, the National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy. And that looks at... Um, literacy and numeracy, as the name suggests, in years three, five, seven, and nine. And I think there are a significant number of schools in, as I said, relatively more middle-class areas. Um, and we take socioeconomic status into account when we look at NAPLAN data so we can compare schools with like schools in terms of um, level of social advantage. Um, but there's, uh, I suspect, a significant number of schools who are getting a, a sneaky lift in their NAPLAN data because of the efforts of parents. And so that means that they feel that they don't need to change their instruction because, look, our, our data is okay. Um, but if there was a proper interrogation of what's going on, A, we would find that that's there's, a, there's other factors there. Um, and B, um, the tail of the curve is not always being lifted. Um, and, you know, the, there are always children who miss out on those extra um, intervention services. So, um, yeah, the, the, the idea that children are, are going to just catch up, uh, I think, is, is really just um, crossing our fingers and saying a little prayer and hoping that some of them do, but not knowing why they do. I was just going to say, I can see why parents might buy into that or go along with it. I know that, you know, I have a four-year-old, so I you know, you often hear things like, oh, well, they develop at different times. Like, don't worry if they don't do whatever it is, yeah. potty training or, you know, they, if they mm. don't do that yet, they'll, they'll get it. Like, they'll, it, it, it'll come. So you can see how, like, going right into school, mm. you can, as a parent, you'd be like, okay, <laughs> you know, they might not get it now, but they'll get it's it. It's very true, <laughs> Melissa. It's very true because, you know, we, we do know that, you know, the age at which children walk, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, some, some babies walk at nine months, some babies walk at 18 months and um, paediatricians are, are happy with both of those as long as there's no other, you know, red flags for concern. Um, so there is a lot of variability in those biologically primary skills. Um, there's variability in the age at which the first words um, start to emerge and, and when children start to put words together. When we're looking at something like reading, which is biologically secondary, it's one of the things that we need to be explicitly taught if we're going to master it. And yes, as we said earlier, there's a small group of children who do seem to need only quite light touch um, instruction. And, you know, we can look at Nancy Young's ladder of reading and writing, you know, that, that group who are right up the top in the green. But we don't design entire education systems around the um, the extra um, benefits, I suppose, that those children have for whatever reason. So, yes, there is 
variability um, in a lot of aspects of child development. But because reading isn't one of those biologically primary skills, we actually want to be looking for low variance in children's progress and, and to be having, um, rather than a, a, a normal bell-shaped distribution of um, achievement in reading. We want it to be a more squished up, um, and I'm pushing my hands together here, which isn't very good for a podcast for um, audio purposes. But we want we want the the curve to be more peaked um, and pushed across to the right, of course, on reading achievement. And one of the ways of achieving that is through low variance instruction. Um, so that children aren't doing something different in, um, you know, at every year level or there's not a high level of variability across classrooms um, in a school or when relief teachers come in, they're doing something different um, and, and children are being exposed to a whole mess of, mess of methods. Um, but we're, we're really wanting to not see that high variability in reading proficiency that we're happy to tolerate in other areas of development. And, and I think that, you know, that's an important kind of pause for consideration there. That's a really helpful distinction. <laughs> I appreciate it as a parent here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think this is our last one from our from your bingo card um, to talk about is number eight. And this is more focused on the teachers and that it says teachers should choose what they think is best. Mm. Oh boy, where, where to start with this one? I, I think, um, you know, if we go right back to the teachings of Kenneth Goodman, th this was one of his central um, pillars, really, that the teacher is the expert in the classroom. And my take on um, his writing in this space is that, um, and others may have different interpretations, I accept that, but my take is that he was um, a bit almost anti-intellectual um, in, in his approach to academic research. So, uh, you know, we, we know that for decades um, teachers haven't been taught research methods, they haven't been taught how to critically appraise research, how to be critical consumers of research. So this idea that um, you know the children in your classroom better than anybody else, so you'll know what's best for them, well, yes, you know, a teacher, if you're a classroom teacher teaching 25 um, grade one students and I've never walked into that classroom, yes, of course you know them better. Um, you know, you, you know something about their backgrounds, their families, you know who the extroverts are, the introverts are, um, who's got really good language skills, whose language skills are not so strong, who are the English language learners. You know, you know lots about them that's really relevant and important for your everyday work as a teacher, as an educator. But that doesn't mean that you're necessarily bringing the strongest theoretical foundations to your work or the most uh, recent evidence-based um, ways of thinking about teaching to your work. So, um, and 
And I think we've done a big disservice to teachers with this idea that, you know, you're the professional, you're the expert, you decide. And sometimes people, if we go back to um, our earlier conversation about analogies with health and medicine, people think that practitioners in those disciplines get to make their own decisions. Well, newsflash, in most cases, they don't. Um, and, and in fact, the hallmark of professionalism in many other disciplines is alignment with evidence-based practice. And, and that, that's really the, the sword that um, practitioners in other disciplines um, live by, fall on sometimes. Um, you know, when was the last time, I don't know about in the United States, but I can't think of any time in Australia that there's been um, a professional action against a teacher for not teaching a child to read. But there are professional actions against doctors and nurses and psychologists when they get their practice wrong. So this this idea that, you know, that the teacher is the expert and we should just close the door and let them do their own thing is not how it works in other um, professions who are working to a high level of um, public accountability in how they make decisions. I often use the example of chest pain. If if one of us, and I hope this doesn't happen, if one of us later in the next 12 hours or so um, experiences such bad chest pain that we go to our local emergency department, the doctor or nurse who triages us isn't going to be making up their own way of triaging someone who turns up with chest pain, they're going to be following a care pathway. And that care pathway is dictated, for want of a better word. You know, it's, it's, it's a protocol that everybody has to follow. Because again, it's about low variance. You know, you don't want to be getting an ECG just because that person's on duty in the emergency department when you go in. But if you go in at a different time, you're going to be reassured and told, well, the last person who came in with chest pain was having a panic attack. So I don't think we need to give you an ECG. So I think we need to step back and really have a big think about what professionalism means. And in most professions, it means a highly constrained form of public accountability and scrutiny. Um, and so if teachers want, um, and, I, and I think, you know, what we would like to see in Australia is a much higher level of esteem for teaching and education in the community, but I think the trade-off for that is that level of accountability um, in the same way that we see high levels of accountability playing out in other professions. Yeah, and I'm wondering if we can just kind of segue into, we, we had talked to about higher education and yep. Lori and I talk about this all the time on our podcast about our experiences in higher education that didn't quite prepare you to be that teacher that knew exactly what to do for your students. Um, yeah, I feel like, in fact, it prepared us with incorrect ideas. Right. Like, that then the were, book that they love. Right. That then you had to undo. Yes. I had to undo. But before that, I had confirmation bias because the curriculum told me that those ideas were right. And then I went into, oh, my gosh, what? What? I don't actually know what what I'm doing. And then it's I really a whole body of research. Um, yeah. Sorry, it's a really elaborate form of gaslighting, really, yes, isn't it? Very much. That, that yeah. goes on. 
So well, what can we, what can we do changes? in higher education? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, in Australia, where we've you know we've faithfully followed the United States in all things reading. Although reading recovery came from our side of the world, not from Australia, it came from New Zealand. So um, our side of the world um, gave you reading recovery, but you very much gave us whole language and balanced literacy, and we've we've uh, been faithful followers. Um, and and now you know we're like you are, um, there's all these islands of activity trying to um, make good on um, translating decades of cognitive psychology evidence um, into something that's accessible and usable by teachers. Most of our universities, um, bear, bear in mind that in Australia, we only have, wait for it, about 40, 40 universities. Um, so we have, <laughs> so our landmass is very similar in size to North America, but our population is much smaller. I think our population is about 27 million. Um, and unlike the United States of America, we don't live right across Australia because there's a vast desert Um in the, in the middle part of Australia. So most of our population is down the eastern seaboard and then Adelaide and Perth and, um, and Darwin, but predominantly eastern seaboard. So we've got 40 universities, but they are um, pre- predominantly still teaching um, balanced literacy to pre-service teachers. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that La Trobe University has been the first mover in this space to formally say we are not teaching balanced literacy. Um, my colleague Tanya Seri and I established the Solar Lab, the Science of Language and Reading Lab. Um, in the School of Education in 2020, we have amazing support from our dean, Professor Joanna Barbousas, who interestingly by background is a secondary art teacher um, and understands the importance of explicit teaching and values the importance of explicit teaching. So she's been tremendously supportive of our efforts. This year, as it happens, and again, bear in mind our academic year is a calendar year, so our students have literally just come back this week, um, and so this is the first week of March. I'm not sure when this episode is going to go to air, Um, but students coming into our Bachelor of Primary Education degree this year, our four-year bachelor's degree, are going to be um, learning, they're going to be classroom ready um, for structured explicit literacy teaching, call it science of reading, call it what you will, they will learn about balanced literacy. And I think this is really important because when they go out on teaching rounds on their placements, in many cases, they're going to be going into balanced literacy classrooms. So part of our job is going to be to prepare them for the conversations that they need to be having. Um, But, you know, it it used to... um, puzzle me, uh, that's probably a nice euphemism, um, That, and I think this still happens in, in most universities, that students graduate not even knowing that the teaching of reading is controversial and contested. They're given balanced literacy as a thing, as a package, and you would, I think you described this, Laurie, that, you know, you, you were just told this is the way you teach reading, um, without even, you know, knowing um, about the fact that in our case in 2005, we had a national inquiry into the teaching of reading. That was five years after your national reading panel. Um, 
our library at La Trobe University didn't have a copy of that um, it, that report um, in its collection, it does now, um, be, because that didn't align with the ideologies and philosophies around how reading was taught. So our students are going to be classroom ready um, to teach explicitly with a scope and sequence, not just phonics, but you know, right, right across the reading rope. They're going to understand theoretical models of reading, the simple view of reading, the four-part process processor model, dual processing theory, but they're going to be classroom ready, but they are also going to be able to have conversations um, because they're going to need to be able to have those conversations about why they're not teaching um, balanced literacy, why they want to teach um, the code explicitly using decodable texts in the early days and so on and so forth. We're starting to see um, uh, some pressure from our federal government um, around changes in initial teacher education. Um, so hopefully we will see some more universities following suit. Uh, my mild anxiety in this space is that um, universities will say, yes, we're going to change and they'll change the terminology in their curriculum documents and syllabus documents, but they won't change the substance of what they actually teach. So call me um, cynical or sceptical, maybe sceptical is a better word. Um, we, we will be able to withstand any level of scrutiny um, with respect to what we're doing at La Trobe because we are so openly advocating for initial teacher education based on the science of reading bearing in mind that the science of reading is a body of knowledge. It's not a pedagogy. And so, you know, our students are going to um, hopefully be research literate, able able to um, access and critique new research and change their practice as time goes by, as the evidence changes. So we're very excited. We don't want to be alone, um, but we don't want people saying that they're doing it and only doing a window dressing exercise in the process. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Pam, I have so many more questions that we definitely don't have time for today. I could talk. <laughs> I would love to hear so much more. Um, but oh my gosh, I just think it's amazing. First that you're, you're educating your pre-service teachers on what balanced literacy is because they should know that going out into the world. And then also that they're going to be the constituents for, structured literacy. Like they are going to be able to help educate the teachers who don't may, don't know, right? And that might be their first time hearing or seeing it. Well, we hope so. We're hoping that our students will be graduates <laughs> of choice and, and employees of choice um, when when they when they when they graduate. We're hoping that schools are going to be looking for La Trobe graduates um, because of their level of classroom readiness. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for Latrobe graduates over I here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let them know that they'll be excited. <laughs> give them my address. Um, so I want to make sure that we give you a moment to mention, because I keep thinking like, you know, we've, we're talking about what higher education can do to make change where we have these, you've told us about your fabulous pre-service teachers who are going to be prepared for the classroom in a way that teachers haven't been in the past, which is super exciting. And I'm just wondering if there are teachers out there teaching who are hearing about this or who are uh, mm -hmm. wanting to learn more about structured literacy, 
what could they do? I know you have a, an online course, like a short course. So I want to make sure you plug that. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Laurie. Um, so Tanya and I have established three short courses um, and we're just about to hit 7,000 um, in, in the number of registrants who've gone through those short Great. courses, uh, which we're really delighted about. And that's, that's 7,000 since September 2020. So we have an introduction to the science of language and reading short course that runs over four weeks. And we just finished that this week, but we'll be doing that again in August. Um, and that's open to anyone anywhere in the world. Um, and, you know, we, we had people from um, the UK um, online with us on, on this one. And it's it's a very flexible online um, delivery. So people can beam in in real time or they can pick up recordings. Um, they can interact with each other via discussion forums. And we provide lots and lots of resources that people can download. And it's very inexpensive. Um, then we do the Science of Language and Reading Intermediate um, short course, which has run over five weeks, and we're starting that next week. And so that's a deeper dive um, and getting into um, uh, more deeply into language. We talk about language disorders. Um, we talk about um, some of the language of psychometrics, of, of testing, of you know, what's a norm reference test, what's a criterion reference test, um, what, what are means and standard deviations when we're talking about interpreting test um, data. Um, and also we look at um, some cognitive science principles of explicit teaching, cognitive load, cognitive load theory. Um, and then our third short course is um, the science of language and reading, the secondary school perspective. Um, so there we're trying to do two things. We're trying to give some tools to secondary teachers across the curriculum who are trying to support students with weak literacy skills because we know way too many children in secondary years do have weak literacy skills. Um, but also, um, I guess, trying to um, help secondary teachers who are, are wanting to further develop um, th those skills in the, in the capable students as well. But probably it's more the first group um, where teachers are saying, well, I'm a maths teacher um, and I didn't sign up to teach reading. Even English teachers didn't sign up to teach reading. Yes. <laughs> um, but there's this growing realisation that if I can't do something about this or if I at least don't understand it, um, then my job is going to be much harder. And I, you know, I think that's a, it's a very big ask of secondary teachers that um, you know, we're asking them to deliver their curriculum and deal with the fact that in many cases they've got students in their year seven, eight, nine classes who might have um, reading and writing skills that are more at a grade two, grade three level. Um, and it amazes me that secondary teachers don't riot in the streets, to be honest, um, because that's not what it should be like for them. So that's our short courses. And then um, there is a language and literacy specialisation in the Latrobe 
Master of Education, um, and that's a, a fully online offering, um, which is a, a deeper dive into all of the areas and some more that we cover in our short courses. So we look at linguistics for reading instruction, um, you know, all that, that that nitty-gritty in the weeds stuff about what's a schwa vowel, what's a phoneme, a grapheme, um, what, what's stress in words, why does understanding about stress in words um, matter? How how do you apply knowledge of the history of English to understanding spelling patterns? Um, So we love teaching that. We had 40 students enrolled last year for the very first time that we offered it and we've got 140 enrolled this year. So uh, we're very pleased with the, um, the level of uptake in that. And I can provide you with some links if you want to um, I was just going to say, notes. I've already got them linked in the show notes. <laughs> oh, so. oh, you're so good. <laughs> you got it. You are as, so as good. You were, as you were talking, I was searching. You were no, you were Googling. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. So I know we could keep going forever, but we don't have forever. So We don't have is there, forever. <laughs> is there any last thing that you want to share with our audience just to wrap us up? last piece of advice or uh, uh, anything? Not, not a piece of advice. Well, I, I would just want to encourage everybody who listens to your program to keep doing the wonderful work that they're doing. I have such a level of awe and respect for classroom teachers. I do wherever I possibly can get into classrooms and I'm always reminded of the complexity of the classroom environment. You know, I have the luxury, I guess, of um, focusing on reading, you know, all things literacy. Classroom teachers are dealing with so much in the context of the, the work that they do every day, understanding the sometimes chaotic um, and difficult home lives that children have, um, the stresses on parents, um, you know, the children who come to school hungry, tired, um, stressed, easily triggered. Um, there's a lot going on in the classroom. Teachers have got pressures from them on them from every angle. My hope is that through better teaching of reading, a number of those pressures are alleviated um, and that teachers enjoy their work more, quite apart from, you know, seeing the the benefits that we see for children. I think there's enormous benefits for teachers as well. But I do just want to give that shout out and say how much I respect um, the, the complexity of what teachers are dealing with every day in their classrooms. We could not agree more. <laughs> it's very confusing well. to be a teacher right now. Yes. yes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And we need to really look after our teachers um, and nurture them um, and keep them in the classrooms um, because, they're, as I said, they're, they're frontline public health um, professionals, really. Well, we are so grateful that... You gave us so much of your time to talk today, and I kind of want to enroll in one of those short courses. Listen, I don't think you'd learn much new. <laughs> oh no, I feel like I learn something new every time I podcast with someone. Every time I read I something, I, I, it's just so amazing. 
that even after all this time, you can still learn something new. But and plus, it'd be really fun to learn from you <laughs> and, and oh, uh, well, Tanya. <laughs> well, we, we, we do learn a lot from our interactions with our participants. You're absolutely right, because they ask us questions that make us pause and think, oh, that's a really good question. Um, we have to have a think about that or we have to do some reading to come back and answer that question well. So the, the learning is very two-way. Well, we same here and we're, we're really happy that <laughs> we got to have this conversation today. So thank you so Absolutely. much for having it with us. Oh, thank you both. It's been thank an absolute you. delight. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.